Open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, the first chapter, and this morning we will undertake the beginning of the third verse. But before I do that, I want to talk to you about the ocean, the ocean. The vast majority of the surface of this planet is covered in water, oceans. And 95% of the oceans that cover this planet have yet to be explored. It is a, it is a vast and mysterious world. In fact, cold, dark, and lifeless is how humanity has viewed what we call the deep oceans for many, many, many centuries. The ocean uh, has what's called the open ocean, which is the area from the surface down to about 600 feet, and that's where the light penetrates, and that's where the majority of the sea life inhabits. You get below 600 feet, you arrive in what's called the twilight zone where there's very little light, and that runs down to about 3,000 feet. And then you go below 3,000 feet, and you arrive at what's called the deep ocean. It wasn't until 1960 that a bathyscape was enabled to be sent to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is the lowest spot on the surface of the planet almost seven miles below sea level. That's deep enough to put Mount Everest and still have a mile of ocean above the peak. It's a very dark place. It's a very cold place. The temperatures of the deep ocean are constantly near freezing. There is no light at all that reaches down there. The pressures are incredible. The further you go, the, the, deep, or the deeper you go, the, the greater the pressure, it, up to 110 times the pressure of Earth's atmosphere here at sea level. In fact, one article I read said that down there in that deep environment, the pressure is, is so great it would be like having 50 jumbo jets piled on top of your chest. Just incredible. The further that scientists explore down there, the more we come to learn that, amazingly, there is life. It's very different than the kind of life that you and I are used to. But that deep ocean, with its foreboding darkness and cold, I think can be an illustration for the way people often approach the sovereignty of God. That is, that they view God in his sovereignty as someone who is cold and dark, foreboding, maybe even lifeless. This first chapter of Paul's letter to the church here at Ephesus is a a very densely packed section of Scripture. We encounter here... God's sovereignty and salvation in in its full glory. It's on display. It is 
both intellectually and spiritually challenging. And as we begin to work through it together, it is, it is going to definitely challenge us. For it's here that we encounter doctrines like God's sovereign election, his predestination, our union with Christ, our adoption by God the Father, his plan for the ages that he works out. Three times in this particular chapter, as you look at it, verses 6 12 and 14, the Apostle Paul responds to this theological reality with with uh, an ascription of praise. He says these things are to the praise of the glory of God. And yet, when some folks read about God's sovereignty in salvation, they recoil from it. They see it as a hateful doctrine that makes God out to be a a merciless tyrant. Others, having become convinced by Scripture of the realities of God's sovereignty in in salvation, have a little bit different view towards it. And and their view is that it's, it's more like your vegetables, It's good for you, but you just as soon not have to eat it. So you acknowledge it to be true, but but you don't really find great joy in it. Then there are those who, having uh, come to understand what is commonly called the doctrines of grace, then begin to use them like a spiritual club to bludgeon other believers Whenever you meet them and talk to them, it seems as though the conversation always comes around to the five points of Calvinism. And as they hammer away on you, uh, you're left wondering, do I just submit or do I turn and run? And then there is Paul's response to these doctrines. And as we note... He erupts in spontaneous statements of praise. He glories in this. He relishes the reality of these doctrines. These are not hateful doctrines. These are not doctrines that, like your carrots, are good for you, but you'd prefer something else. These doctrines are not a club, my friends to beat up your fellow Christian with. These doctrines are something to understand and then glory in. These are designed, as they're revealed to us, to lift our hearts in worship to our great God. They're a source of incredible joy and comfort, for they reveal something of our God. I want to avoid the trap of some of these aforementioned mistakes when it comes to the sovereignty of God by focusing this morning on verse 3 and really just the first few 
words of verse 3, a little expression there in verse 3, because I think it will set the stage for us. Here in verse 3, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop there and contemplate that reality. Because as I have spent this week thinking about these things, I find here in this little expression, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, two thrilling and heartwarming realities. They're inherent here in God as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God as Father. I want to look with you this morning at the fatherhood of God as it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read, get us going here. We'll read the whole section before we jump back to that little expression. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Let your eyes go back there to verse 3. And that expression, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that little expression alone, as I say, there are two really incredible realities that are, that are just heartwarming. They're, they're thrilling, and, and I hope by the time we're done together that you would see that as well. They begin, first off, and that God the Father is eternally loves the Son. That's the first reality. God the Father eternally loves the Son. The God of the Bible is triune. 
He is one God, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This reality is essential to the Christian faith. And it is essential to the very nature and identity of God. Beloved, if we get this wrong, we have the wrong God. And if we have the wrong God, we have no salvation. So this is not merely an academic undertaking. This is an exploration to know our God. Now, often we think about God and speak about God as the creator, the creator God. Or we speak of him as the ruler of the universe, the sovereign one, the almighty God. We think of him as creator, we think of him as ruler. But these are not who he is essentially. Now, work with me on this. You're going to have to think this morning. But if God's very identity is to be the creator, what that means is that he needs a creation in order to be who he is. Let me repeat that for you. If God's essential identity is to be the creator then he needs the creation in order to be who he is. That, my friends, would make him dependent upon the creation for his own existence, and that is not the Christian God. It is not the Christian God. Now, is God the creator of the universe? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But it is not who he is fundamentally or essentially. Keep thinking with me. God's identity is not also essentially that of a ruler or a lawgiver. Because if that were true, then my problem with him would be that I have broken his rules. And thus the only salvation he can offer me would be to treat me as if I had not broken his rules. In other words, that I could relate to him as one might relate to a police officer who pulls you over for running a red light. And then doesn't write you a ticket. You would be deeply grateful. Profoundly grateful. Happy, happy, happy. But you would not love him. You would not love him. Which means that you could never keep the greatest commandment which is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So is God the ruler and creator and lawgiver? Yes. Yes. 
But that's not who he is essentially. And that's not how we are to relate to him. So who is God? Who is God? The answer to the question is is bound up in the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. And beloved, it's simply this. If, If Jesus is the Son, then obviously he has a Father. He has a Father. This is God's very essence. He is the Father. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus reveals him to us. John chapter 14 and verse 6. It's this is the way. Where there Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me. Not no one comes to the Creator. Not no one comes to the Lawgiver. Not no one comes to the Almighty. No one comes to the Father, but through me. Now, the fatherhood of God is is a concept that is continually revealed through Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. This is not some new truth that, that only sprang upon us when Jesus showed up, as it were. Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, the Lord calls Israel his firstborn son. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 31, it says there that God carries his people as a father carries his son. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 5, God disciplines them as a man disciplines his son. Psalm 103 verse 13 He has compassion on them as a father has compassion on his children. The revelation of Jesus Christ himself where he continues and and always refers to God as his father. The apostle Peter, Paul, both refer to God, to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7 says that God is treating the believer as sons when he disciplines them. This very, very fine book called Delighting in the Trinity, Mr. Michael Reeves says the following, I quote, Since God is before all things a father, and not primarily creator or ruler, all his ways are beautifully fatherly. Close quote. All his ways are beautifully fatherly. Beloved, all God does, he does as a father. That is who he is. Let me say it again to you. All God does, he does as a father. 
That is who he is. A father. Now, what this means is that even an orphan, an orphan can, can come to understand what it means to be a human father by coming to know God. Many of you have been blessed by having wonderful, loving human fathers in your lives. And you have learned many things about what it means to be a father or to have a father. And others of you have not had that blessing. For some of you, your father is absent and has been for basically your entire life. Or he has treated you cruelly, neglectfully. But beloved, the pattern for what a father is and does is not humanity. The pattern for what a father is and does is God. And we learn, men, what it means to be a father by our study of God. By coming to know him. By, by, by meditating and, and reveling in the beauty of who he is. And then we are shaped by that. You see, and that means there is hope for everyone. Everyone. Question. What was God doing before the creation of the world? What was he doing before he created the world? The answer to that is found in John 17. And so... I will turn you there. Might keep your thumb in Ephesians, and we'll be going to be back and forth probably a number of times between John 17 and Ephesians 1. But in John 17, this is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. This is the prayer he prayed on the night of his arrest, just a couple of hours, really, before his arrest, on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. So this follows what happened in the upper room. He's on his way back to the Father. The cross lies before him. It's the last and final hurdle. And then it'll be mission accomplished. And he says here in verse 24 of John 17 something incredible. He says, Father, and then let your eyes drop to the bottom of the verse, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before creation? Loving the Son. Loving the Son. Now the implications of that reality, beloved, are immense. They're thrilling. They inflame or should inflame our hearts. Because this is what explains why God created humanity. 
Why did God create Adam and Eve? To share and reflect His love. To share and reflect His love. See, He didn't create them to be His servants. Nor did He create them to be His worshipers. For God does not need to be served. Nor does God need to be worshipped. God created you out of the overflow of the love that he has for his son. A love that has, that has filled and absorbed the intra-Trinitarian fellowship for all of eternity. It is out of this great love for the Son poured forth that He made you and He made me. It is the Father's eternal love for the Son that explains why He redeemed us. It was out of an overflow of his love. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is to have the life of God. Here in Ephesians chapter 1. Notice at the end of verse 4 and the beginning part of verse 5. In love he predestined us. There's nothing cold about that. There's nothing dark or foreboding about that. It is, a, it is an overflow of the inter-Trinitarian love. It is his love for the Son that he delights and desires to share. And thus he predestines. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, Paul speaks of the same events, the, the predestination of the believer and his ultimate glorification. And he says it's so that Jesus will be firstborn among many brethren. That is, that the Father would share the love that he has for the Son with many, many, many other sons. It is the Father's eternal love for the Son that is the motivation for us to love God and those made in the image of God. You're right. You remember when the, when the lawyer came to Jesus and he said, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Thou shalt what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it and your neighbor as yourself. The motivation to love God and neighbor is the love of God that has flooded us. The love of the Son that has been shared with us. Beloved, God is many things. He is creator. He is ruler. But he is essentially a father. 
a father. And it's through the great doctrines that we will be studying here in the next few weeks of election and and predestination that we will learn to, to revel in the love of that father. The love that he has for his son and shares with us. Someone once said that, and I think rightfully so, we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. Well, when we worship a loving, outgoing, generous Father, it can't help but transform us into loving, outgoing, generous people. As we reflect the essential nature of our God. So the first reality that thrills my heart, and I hope yours, is that the Father eternally loves the Son. The second is like it and related to it, and it is this. God the Father is in eternal fellowship with the Son. God the Father eternally loves the Son, and God the Father is in eternal fellowship with the Son. Again, for all eternity, God has been loving and enjoying intimate fellowship within the Godhead. We get a hint of this in John chapter 1 and verse 18. Where John writes, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, more literally in the lap of the Father, he has explained him. The Son who is in the lap of the Father, that's a a position of intimacy. Fellowship. Back to chapter 17 and, and verse 5 where Jesus on his way to return back to the the intimacy and fellowship that he has enjoyed for all eternity, says verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved, or loved them, even as you have loved me. What has God been doing from eternity? Loving the Son and enjoying the intimate fellowship within the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. It is through the overflow of that love God created Adam and Eve. That he might share the love with them and that he might enjoy with them the intimacy of fellowship. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. We're there, it's it's following Adam's transgression, but but we find that, that enigmatic little statement Right? That the, the Lord God walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day. That's a statement about intimacy, about relationship, about closeness. 
Again, God sharing the overflow of the intimate fellowship that he has with himself within the triune Godhead. Sharing it with this creature called mankind. Now when Adam sinned, that intimacy and that fellowship was shattered. Sin entered into the world. And sin is always, at first and foremost, an attack on a relationship. And that's exactly what happened. And that intimacy was, was severely damaged. In fact, we see that symbolically in chapter 3 and verse 24 of, of, Genesis, 24, or of Genesis 3, rather, 3.24, where they are excluded from the garden and God sets up an angel with a flaming sword to, to prevent access. Back to the tree of life. But God is loving and merciful, gracious and kind. And and so he instituted a sacrificial system whereby the relational damage could temporarily be rolled back. Humanity could come near again. But not too close. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19 and in verses 10 and following, God says there for the people, he is to come down on Mount Sinai and he says that the people are to bathe and wash themselves and to come near, but not too close. Do not touch the mountain or you will die. You may come close. There is a, there is a level of intimacy and fellowship that can be restored, but not too close. You can never go back to what you've lost. And beloved, that was the state of the world for millennia. That was the human predicament for thousands of years. And yet in that state, there there remained within the human soul a longing for and reminder of what had been. And what someday will be. We find it voiced by the shepherd king David in the 23rd Psalm. In verse 6 where he says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the longing of the faithful heart. To share again. The intimacy that man once had because God opened up to humanity his own fellowship. Well, beloved, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came. And he came and said in John chapter 17 and verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. 
Now, the, the knowing of God spoken of here, this is, we're not talking about a download of information. Jesus is not saying, this is eternal life. That you would know all there is to know academically about God. No, it's, he's speaking here of an intimacy, of a knowing God. This concept of knowing is, is used by the Hebrews to speak of intimacy. I mean, we see it in, in Adam and his wife, right? Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore a son. It's a term of intimacy. This is eternal life. Intimate fellowship with the Father. Take a look at verses 24 and following in John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see the glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That the separation between us and the Father would be overcome. That the fellowship would be restored. This is life. And this is life abundant. Abundant. Now the means by which we share this fellowship with God is our adoption as sons of God. Again, take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, the end of verse 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It is adoption, beloved, is the act of God whereby he makes us sons, members of his family. He draws us in to share the love and the intimacy that he knows and shares with his son. It is through adoption that we are brought into that loving, intimate fellowship with God. Speaking of adoption, Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. By which we cry out, Daddy, Father, no longer distant, no longer remote, no longer cold, no longer foreboding and fearful, but warm, close, and intimate. And beloved, it can't help but transform us. It cannot help but transform us. 
It's as we think on the reality of our fellowship with God, the Father, by which we receive the means and motivation to say no to sin. The power to say no to sin lies in in thinking and contemplating and, and reveling in the fellowship we enjoy with God the Father. It's not about rules. It's not about don't do this and do do that. It's about fellowship. It's about intimacy. It's about being loved and and loving in return, in response. I mean, John says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Because he first loved us. Beyond that, beloved, it is the fellowship with the Father that is the basis of our fellowship with one another, is it not? As we are in fellowship with the Father, we are consequently in fellowship with one another, for we become members of the family of God. These are powerful things to think on. To allow to wash over your heart and mind. And God and Christ has given us a a regular reminder of the reality of this relationship. This loving, intimate fellowship that he has opened wide to us. And he has done it in the table. There's nothing more intimate, more fellowshipy than to break bread together, to eat together. To dine together, to share together. This is why Jesus chose a meal, a simple and ordinary reality of human life, and infused it with such importance and meaning. Because it's it's what gives us that regular reminder. That God has invited you to dinner. He has thrown open wide his arms. If you're here this morning and you don't know the love of God, you're not sure of the love of God for you. If you were to describe your relationship to God, it would not, a father would not be the first word you choose. And fellowship is not how you would describe it. Then I would love to talk with you. I would love to 
to share with you the good news of how my Father has thrown open wide His arms to you and invites you to come in. Let's pray. Our Father, how sweet to say those words. How intimate it is to refer to you by, by the name Father, to, to come to know and to understand the reality of who you really are. To revel in the love that you have for your Son. The fellowship that you enjoy within the relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit that you have thrown open to us. How this transforms us, Father. How it causes us to see the world differently, to see ourselves differently. How it causes us to to delight in you. How it turns us from being bent in on ourselves to looking out with arms wide open. Oh, continue your good work in us. Fulfill your promises to us. Continue to shape us by that love. In Jesus' name, amen.